I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. In this episode I'm talking to Renali Collings about her commercial novel Love and Other Dramas. Renali is an English writer of Sri Lankan heritage who has a degree in English literature from King's College. She also studied law and worked in finance for 16 years before gaining an MA in creative writing from Brunel University. I think this chat is really inspiring because Renali reached a point in her life where she'd given up on writing and her dreams of being a writer. But it was Bernadine Evaristo who inspired her to carry on. And I think many writers could learn a lot from Renali's story and her route to publication. In this episode, we also chat about diversity in genre fiction and challenging stereotypes across the board. And how important it is to remember that publishing a novel is about collaboration with your team and not just a lone struggle. But first, here's Renali with an excerpt from Love and Other Dramas. Tani fought back the tears as she sorted through all of Keith's mess. Her beautiful new suit that she'd steamed last night was covered in lint and dust. She might be a lawyer, but here she was cleaning up a man's mess yet again. So much for the great feminist emancipation. She hadn't expected to hit the ground running, but being expected to clean up Keith's crap was soul-destroying. It was more of the same old pattern of doing everything for everyone else. The new life she'd envisioned for herself was slipping away before it had even started. Keith entered the room and picked his way across the floor with exaggerated huffs and glares at Tanya for taking up all the space, even though it was all his mess. Still not finished? She didn't trust herself to speak without bawling, so she shook her head. I'll take my things and work in the conference room until this place looks better. And make sure you dust this, he said, running his finger along a shelf. She didn't want to be a problem on her first day, swiftly gaining a reputation for not being a team player or too big for her boots, and therefore have zero billable hours for the foreseeable future. So she swallowed her words and continued to sort through the piles of paper on the floor. Keith headed out of the office, laptop in hand. He handed her a small slip of pink paper. Pick up my dry cleaning, would you? She stared at it. Was he serious? She looked up at him as he sneered at her, daring her to lose her cool and prove that all women her age were menopausal slaves to their emotions. Once again, she choked back her words and took the paper from him. Keith smiled in triumph and left. 
She pulled herself up from the floor and heard a rip. There was now a cool breeze on the back of her thighs. Oh God, could this day get any worse? Tani had promised herself that no matter what, she wouldn't cry in the office, but this was the absolute last straw. The tears began to flow. It was the worst possible start, and she wanted to slink out, get on the tube, and go home to spend the next few days under the duvet. Instead, she texted Priya. Code red, skirt split right up to bum. Hi, Winali. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, Love and Other Dramas. Thank you so much, Chloe. I'm really honoured. So can you start by introducing your novel to us and telling us what it's all about? So I did have a little think about this question and I'm suffering a little bit because when I first started writing this book, I did not write myself a pitch. <laughs> you know, I, always, I don't know about you, I always find this the hardest question of them all. It really is. When, when you've been working on a book for how many years and then you have to summarise it in three sentences, exactly. it's really hard. But... Exactly. So I'm going to steal um, my editor Jane's strapline, which is uh, three women, two cultures and one second chance. And it really sums up the book, which is about three British South Asian women who are all at crossroads in their lives. They're all older, so they're 40 plus. Um, Two of them are related, their mother and daughter, and um, two of Sri Lankan heritage and one is of Indian heritage. And it's basically them using this crossroads as a springboard to changing their lives. And it's looking at their families and love and career. So it's, you know, it's not one of those books where it's got a central plot and something specific happens. Um, but it is about people's relationships and people that uh, look like me, basically. Yeah. And it's a real character led book. Um, yes. I think obviously, like you've mentioned, the diversity of the characters, be it their their race, their age, is so important and so central to the story. So was that the starting point for you then? It was telling this story that you hadn't read before and you wanted to use your voice to, to write it? Yes, that really was the, the catalyst for me because um, I had actually given up writing at that point. <laughs> and, and then Bernadine Evaristo published Girl, Woman, Other, and she had these 12 characters and they were all different ages and they were um, all people that I had not seen within the pages of a book before. And it kind of got me thinking. And then I was having a discussion with my mum about some family matter. And my mum had a very different opinion about it to me. And my mum is a devout Catholic as well. So there was a, like a religious element there. And I was thinking to myself, there's something here that that's what I need to be writing. Um, because previously I had been focusing on a, on a relationship between a man and a woman alone. And it there was something missing. And I think at that point I thought, I need to write about women and I need to write about the differences and how they support each other or don't um, and the way that relationships break and we fix them and so on. And that was really the genesis. But it was also putting people who look like me and my mum onto the page, because I think that very often for South Asians, uh, for, for anyone really, for anyone different, everyone thinks we have one story. And I'm sure you find the same, um, that everyone thinks 
everyone with a disability has the same story. Everyone who's South Asian has the same story. And they don't think that, you know, one, it's a huge continent <laughs> and uh, the world is huge. And we're all so different. We all have different beliefs. We have different um, ways of looking and dressing and thinking and um, different jobs. We have different amounts of money. You know, all of those things make a, a difference. So I wanted to just show a, a, a side that people probably didn't see before, because I often get questions. You know, when when people meet me, I if, if they haven't seen me and they've just heard me, they're always shocked at how I look. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> since I changed my name, especially people look at me and they're like, oh, I wasn't expecting you to look like that. Then they'll, they'll be like, no, you, you're not Catholic, are you? And I'm like, yes, well, I was, you know, baptised and all that. And I just wanted to challenge all of those stereotypes by writing a story that was, I mean, it's not my life, but there's lots of elements of it in there. Mm, I know you mentioned in your author's note that Tanya, your main character, well, I'd say main character, there are three characters, but Tanya is the kind of linchpin of them all because she is the daughter of Helen and the best friend of Priya. And you've spoken that uh, about Tanya has kind of some parallels with you in your own life. Uh, obviously, you're not you're not Tanya, but no. tell us a little bit about her and how your real life experience helped you write her. She was actually the hardest character to write because the other two had very distinct personalities. But I think because she was there was more of me in that character, it was harder to put her onto the page. And a lot of the feedback I had was she seems a little lost. <clears throat> and I had to really think about that because I think it was um, it's partly why I stopped writing ages ago is because the character was too close to me. So the more distance I put there was it, it made her a richer character. But she really comes from this place of where I, I got to a stage of my life where my whole life was focused on all the other people in it. And there was literally nothing left for me. And that sort of started to happen, I suppose. I mean, when you when I became a mum, it was more acute then. But I think it had already started to happen when I got married, I think. Because I, I was, um, I've been with my husband since I was 25. And so I wasn't particularly mature when we got together. And I feel like I started to lose a lot of myself um, in an effort to fit in with him or please him or whatever he never asked me to do it but you know that's something I did and then when I had children and I had fertility struggles having my kids I put so much of my efforts into that um I didn't really think about it and I got to a stage in 2008 after I'd gone back to work after my second child where I was offered voluntary redundancy and something I was at home and I thought what am I going to do and it took me it really took me three years to decompress from all the work and the stress of work. And then I thought, what am I going to do? Uh, maybe I should go back to uni and, and do something. So I did that. Um, but that even that wasn't the complete answer to everything. My husband would say to me, what is it that you want out of your life? And I remember turning around to him and going, I don't know. Unlike you, I don't have the luxury to sit around and think about what I want to do with my life because I am like doing everything for everybody else. And and it was a real wake up call for me. And I had to I had a, a friendship break up around the same time. And I actually went to see a therapist <laughs> about it. And it, if I didn't, I don't think I'd have been able to write Tanya <clears throat> because Tanya is 
is very much that at that stage of her life and I put her around a divorce because I think it's a, a quite a good time it's a huge period of upheaval in anybody's life and I think many people will reassess what they're doing and um maybe I should go and do something else with my life and they don't always you don't always make the right decisions so I think it came it really came from that period in my life where I was a bit I was a bit lost to be honest I didn't really know what it was that I should be doing and for me writing fills that hole mm. um, and writing not for academic purposes just writing for me the story that I wanted to write and so Tanya came out of that really and that I think a lot of other women feel that at different points of their lives because women tend to nurture and care and you know they could be it doesn't need to be about being a mother but many women are carers for parents for siblings for um you know spouses <clears throat> and I think we just do we take those roles on and very often we lose ourselves in them mm. and I think Tanya it's it's not a kind of cliche story of a, a you know a rejuvenation of her life when she's divorced she's kind of confused I mean um hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler to say because we find out pretty early on but she's still sleeping with her ex-husband and she's still going back there and she's having issues at work and is a bit like you say lost so it's 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 interesting to have this kind of like you say crossroads in someone's life where they're not definitely sure where they want to go next and the other characters explore those themes as well yes yeah I and I think with um with Tanya she needed to lose a lot before she started to really change her life Mm. so I'm again I'm not going to give anything away but a lot happens to her she's not really the catalyst in her life things just happen to her and and what I wanted to show in her arc was there has to come a point in your life where you make stuff happen Mm. and and there and there is a turning point where she starts making things happen in her life and I I felt for me when I did that that made my life much happier because I made the decisions and it wasn't you know I think throughout my entire life if I'm perfectly honest with you things have just happened to me you know I've, I've tried I've tried and tried and tried like when I, when I finished university I you know filled in 300 job applications for uh, a traineeship to be a lawyer and I got 300 rejections <clears throat> and you know you try and I just got tired of trying and think but things just happened to me then you know I just happened to get some another job and I, this is the only time in my life, I think, where I have properly done what I wanted to do. And I wanted to reflect that in Tanya's character arc as well. I want to touch on the other two women because you explore quite different, although we're, we're looking at women who are in crossroads, at a crossroads, they both have very different paths they take. And I'm not going to give too much away for this particular plot line, but Priya gains a quite a surprising love interest. And I thought one of the things you did so well was that they had fantastic chemistry. And I was wondering whether you think that was a dialogue thing. How did you kind of create this chemistry for them? I think dialogue is certainly a very important part of that process because very often in the things that we say, we're giving hidden messages to people, particularly when you're flirting with somebody. Um, but I do think very much the um, 
it's great being a writer, isn't it? Because you can put what's in somebody's head on the page. And so I think some of the thoughts that are going through Priya's head at the same time, that does help build another layer for you. Um, and then also the body language. And there had to be some visceral, physical reactions. And I think those are the little things that give it away as you're going through. So that that's really how I built it. It was like one layer, then another layer, then another layer mm. um, to to just see how it works. And the emotions and I guess the attraction of these characters was something I know you had to keep working on in the edit. So you yes, were adding yes. more emotion as you went on. Basically, I, I when I did my master's, they say you, know, you can write in any genre, but really they want you to write literary. And so you end up writing in a very literary style, which um, has no emotion in it. And all the emotion is in the environment, not in the character or the character's head. And because that that encourages you to write better, you know, to use your language in a different way. Um, so for me, every edit that I had with Hayley, my agent, um, was more emotion, more emotion. We need more emotion. In. And I was like, what is she talking about? <laughs> and then once I went away and read the books that I love anyway, you know, the commercial books, suddenly the penny dropped I was oh I get it now and then I would put it in and I think it was too much and she'd come back and go no more 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 and um it it was a tough habit to break you know when you write in a certain style for academics uh you to change that is really quite difficult but actually for me unlocking that helped enormously because this is the type of book I want to write you know I do want to write commercial um fiction so for me unlocking that and being free to put the emotion into it was wonderful because I am actually a very emotional writer not not just in that I'm in tears whenever I'm editing <laughs> <laughs> I guess or whatever. <laughs> I'm emotional in that way I'm quite emotional in how I write because I have to um this is gonna sound really pretentious but I have to be in my character's head to write them mm-hmm. and so I have to feel that emotion and put it down and that's it is quite draining for me and so sometimes I have to walk away if I'm in a difficult position I have to force myself to be horrible to my characters sometimes and put them in really difficult situations but I am an emotional writer so once I unlocked that it's much easier now for me Mm. to do that and there may be too much now. (laughs) No I think it it pays off really well and um, as I said to you before they're a sexy couple so just embrace that I mean it works it's great. Someone else said that as well, actually. Sorry, I'm <laughs> so I want to talk about Helen now because she is the oldest of all these women. She's Tanya's mum. And you explore kind of love after the death of her husband and kind of uh, what it's like to be later in life. Um, she works in an amazing cafe slash secondhand bookshop, yeah. which I said on Twitter that you know if, if anyone knows of any shops <laughs> like this I think the other day I walked past one and I'm like I need to do some investigation because this sounds like the dream yeah um, so why did you want to explore this positive story of love and life in a in an older woman um have you ever seen Last Tango in Halifax I haven't but I know everyone raves over it yeah so I was a big fan of that and I I thought you know what I actually love seeing people diverse people a whole range of people fall in love and uh, so that was one of the reasons that I did it but the other reason is that really Helen is very much I mean she's not my mother 
she'll kill me. <laughs> but she's um, she's based on my mum. There's elements of my mum in there. And my mum's generation of women um, grew up, but particularly in Sri Lanka, society was such that you didn't have lots of relationships or anything. I, I, you tended to marry the first person that you were kind of seen with. And um, often the marriages aren't full of, I mean, they're not, they're not arranged. Not all of them are arranged. My mum certainly didn't have an arranged marriage, but they're not often full of the romance that you would expect. Particularly also because like for my parents, they got on a boat and they came over here in 1965 and they had to make a life for themselves in a new country. And, you know, there's not a lot of room for romance when you're going through all of that stuff. And so part of that was giving my mum's generation that kind of story that some of them might not have had um, to give uh, like a second chance. Mm. But also to show the growth. You know, you, you come to a country like this and it's quite different in many ways. Um, and you will be affected by that, I think, over the period of time that you're living in this country. So, I, like, I've had this conversation with my mum, would she ever go back and live in Sri Lanka? And she just looks at me like I'm mental because <laughs> she came here when she was 25. She got married when she was 25. And she's been here longer than she was ever there. Mm. And it's inconceivable for her to, um, to ever go back. So I, th- I think I wanted to show... One, the life of someone who's lived here like that. But two, to give her um, a character where she, uh, not my mum, but to give Helen somebody where she's looked after and, you know, where where it's a partnership. Whereas Mm -hmm. Helen was also the nurturer in her relationship and her family. And um, I wanted the Catholicism to play into there because Catholicism is all about delayed gratification. The whole religion is predicated on you will get your reward in heaven. And I've had this conversation with my mum again where I've said to her, what if there is no heaven and you've waited your whole life and nothing has happened (laughs) or you've done nothing? And I wanted to put that in a book. Mm. So that's where Helen came from, basically. And lucky for Helen, her little slice of heaven comes in the form of a handsome man in a coffee shop. So, I mean, what more could you want? (laughs) Books and a handsome man. Exactly. (laughs) The dream. (laughs) So this novel is, I mean, it's such a warm novel and it's full of friendship and real life and, and humour, but your characters do touch on issues with things like microaggressions and how their heritage kind of affects their day-to-day life, which is obviously a natural thing for you to write about. But were these were these important for you to write about in a kind of commercial book? And did you ever feel any... I guess, apprehension about trying to touch on these topics, but still make it a light and, you know, warm read. It it was very difficult to write them, I think, and keep it light. Um, would I say it was really important to me that I put them in? I wouldn't say it was super important because my main impetus for writing the book was to not make it about race. Mm-hmm because I wanted to show that this is how we live our lives. We, that most people are just trying to live their life and it's other people who make us feel like we don't belong. And that's how um, racial prejudice seems to impact, I would say 99% of us. I don't think we're all going around, you know, making a big deal out of everything all the time. 
I think there's a lot that we take on as, a, you know, the microaggressions because you can't be fighting all the time. And people don't realise, I think some people don't realise that they are microaggressions either. So I wanted to put those in. There's not many, but I wanted to put them in because those are all, I have experienced every single one of those. Um, so it's it's from personal experience. And I do think also there's a difference between generations. I am 51 now and I went to school in the early 70s, in the 70s and then 80s. And the people I grew up with grew up with people like Bernard Manning and Jim Davidson on the television. <laughs> and and it was acceptable to say that kind of stuff. And even now in our early 50s, people still think some of that stuff is OK to say. So that's why I would have experienced some of those microaggressions that maybe some people who are younger wouldn't experience at work or might not have I hope they haven't experienced and that but there'll be different types of microaggressions that they they experience so these are the ones that I've had um and it was important because it is part of my life it there's not a day there isn't something you know and a, a very, I'll tell you one that I get every day is when I get a delivery and because my name is Renali Collings obviously that's my my surname is my husband's surname but often people hand me the package and go and you are are you sure <laughs> that every day <laughs> so but those things happen all the time you know it's just part of my life and it, if I'm gonna depict British South Asian women it would be wrong of me to do it without anything like that. here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And obviously you wrote this book as a 
as your way of writing what you wanted to see in the world and books that where you could recognize women like yourself do you think that I guess genre fiction is changing do you think women's fiction is changing not just in terms of racial diversity but in diversity in general age um sexuality do you think it is that women's fiction is becoming more open to telling different stories now I think it has I think there's been a definite shift and it's recent I would say it's really in the last two or three years that you're starting to see more of these books and I don't know if some of it was sparked by the pandemic and George Floyd and people in publishing looking at the stories they were telling and thinking well actually then there's not much else here particularly in the UK um there is a change it's still not enough Mm. and and I'm I remain to be convinced that it's not a trend, a short-term trend. I'm hoping that it's a much deeper, um, a deeper change. I know certainly I'm very lucky. My agent is very much focused on those stories. So I know it's not just me. Mm. And, you know, she has a very diverse client list and she's actively looking for those stories. So being one of those gatekeepers, that's great to see. And I think, and my agency in, in... general they're great because they do have a lot of diversity amongst their authors hopefully that will carry through into publishing and the people who are buying the books I think um I did hear once that someone said that you know brown and black people don't really buy books and I I was thinking why is that is that is that even true because everybody I know buys books and a lot of it is that I think one they're not doing the research properly (laughs) and two I just think they might buy more books if they weren't all one story of whiteness, you know, mm. if, if they saw more diversity within the books that they're reading. And it isn't all literary fiction, because I think a lot of brown and black people don't want to read literary. They want to see themselves in lots of other genres. So I do think it's changing. It's slow. And I think there's a long way to go with it. I mean, I, I don't think my book was particularly easy to sell because I'm older, I've written about older characters, brown characters. And for me, the digital space worked really well because it's a space where publishers can take a lot, a greater risk uh, because you know the outlay isn't as onerous as it would be for the whole print um, publication. So I think it was a good space for me, but there needs to be space for people like me in traditional publishing as well. Yeah, definitely. and. You've had such an interesting journey to this publication that I want to touch on your story of how you got here, really, because you, I know you've written a quite a lengthy thread on Twitter about it, and you've got great response from people because I think they were so inspired to hear your story of kind of almost giving up and then starting again and then giving up again. So I'd love to know, you'd said in an interview that you found you kind of thought that writing was never an option for you it was never like a realistic career and I know a lot of people feel that way as well so was there a moment where you thought okay it is I am going to be a writer now and this is the moment and have you ever had that moment where you thought I'm a writer now (laughs) it's very (laughs) funny actually because I still don't think I am (laughs) (laughs) I had a book published and people are reading my book I still do I still don't quite feel it you know I feel like it's a bit 
I think surreal is such an overused word, but it really is surreal. I just can't get my head round the fact that I had had this dream since I was a little girl that I wanted to write, and it's come true. And I find that really bizarre, and and I can't quite get my head round it. You know, I sit here and I look at the book cover and I think that's got my name on it, but I still haven't quite got my head around the whole thing. So I don't know if there was, there's ever been a point. I just know that I had to write at one point and it, it's helped me through so much. And I'm just really grateful that somebody found it and liked it enough to offer me the mentorship that I got with Madeline Melbourne. Yeah, so I want you to tell us a little bit more about that. But first, tell us what led you to that point, because I think you mentioned you had this discussion with your yeah. husband where he said, what do you want to do? And you said, I don't know. But you went and did a master's, am I right? And that's where you met Bernadine Evaristo, which obviously, how incredible was that yeah. to have her as a mentor? So can you tell us about that and then tell us about so, the mentorship? How, how did it all happen for you? So even applying for um, university, when I first went back, I was really just, I need to do something because my brain is atrophying after I've been um, made redundant. And my kids were growing up a little bit. And I thought, I've got a bit of time. So I was looking at courses and thinking, oh, maybe I'll do another comparative literature course. Um, and maybe I'll do a master's in something. You know, so, and I thought, no, you know, I don't want to write academic papers ever again. I'm not doing that. And so I found a creative, uh, two creative writing courses, one at Birkbeck and one at Brunel. And I picked Brunel because Brunel was close uh, to where I lived and with kids. And I, honestly, I had been writing a book in my spare time and uh, thought well you know let's have a go and then I thought I can't send that in because that's rubbish so I had to sit down <laughs> and come up with a little short story or a short descriptive passage and uh, sent that in thought let's hope I get onto this novel course and was absolutely stunned to get a place and when I went to the open day um, I hadn't realised that it, you know a lot of people apply for the novel course and they don't get on so I thought well, maybe, I, maybe I can do this and uh, went and did the course where they spend the first term looking at different genres. So I tried lots of di different genres. And at that stage of my life, I did not want to write anything close to my experience because I was like, God, you know, everyone just wants me to write about mangoes and saris and what they can recommend, you know, recognise. And they would be interested in what I say. But when we did that element of the course, that was one piece of writing that shone out from the rest of them. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to think about this now. Aren't I? <laughs> and, uh, and then we had the novel writing piece at the end. of. So I did it over two years. So for me, the second year I did my novel writing piece. And um, they say they're going to match you up with people in your genre and they don't do that. And um, my friend and I were the two middle aged, two of the middle aged uh, people on the course. I think there were like three or four of us in total. And they had assigned everybody else their tutors. I'm just forgotten about us at the back of the room because obviously we're middle-aged women and we're invisible. So um, we were like, uh, you forgot about us. So the guy said, oh, well, why don't you just go to this room? Because um, there's space in that tutorial. And we went in and there was Bernadine. And this is all pre-Booker, but even so, the, the one um, lecture that she gave us on characters is that really 
influenced both of us and my my friend Faith and I were like yes result we've got Bertie <laughs> and uh, she was really challenging you know so this short story I'd written that I thought was the bee's knees she was like no nah, that's not right <laughs> that Ooh, is not, brutal. that's not your voice yeah <laughs> and then as I wrote something she's like no nah, that's not right and she pushed and pushed and pushed me and suddenly I don't know what happened but my voice came out slightly on the page and um, I finished that master's with her supervision and started a PhD with her. I didn't want to do the PhD, but she was like, no, no, you have to do a PhD, you have to try this. And so um, I struggled and I struggled because I was still writing about something that I was going through in my life. And it was very difficult to do that. And I was having a really tough time trying to decide if I wanted to write who I was what um who I was beyond being a, a wife a mother a daughter why was I doing the PhD in the first place was it doing it for me or was I doing it for Bernie was I doing it for my parents was I doing it for a qualification and I I had to really do some soul searching and during that whole process I realized that I just didn't want to do anything at the time and so I withdrew from my PhD which was a very difficult decision and Bernie really tried to keep me on that you know we changed what I was writing and she was she was wonderful she was really good at listening to me and she just said I think you need to write something that's not anywhere near your life and I tried that but I think I just wasn't in the right headspace to write and life just gets on top of you sometimes and you, you know I needed to take that time away and do nothing and I thought well actually you know maybe I'm not meant to be a writer I'm not that great at it I should just uh, look after my kids and read and support all my friends. And there comes a point, you know, like a year later, you've got friends winning competitions or getting an agent or getting published. Or, and I thought, why can't that be me? And I, I, then I gave myself a talking to and just went off. It's never going to be you if you don't sit down and write something. And probably I think it was the um, I think it was towards the end of 2019 these ideas came to me and I sat down and started writing and I thought I'm just going to write for me if it goes nowhere that's fine I just need to write this now and I had never felt like that about anything before in my life so I for me when I sat down I was getting so much pleasure out of writing it because I wasn't writing it for any particular purpose and um and suddenly there was my voice this voice that never really appeared properly on the page before was suddenly there and I thought well okay let's just carry on and then around um I can't remember I think it may have been April or something or May of 2020 during the pandemic I saw a tweet that said that the Madeleine Melbourne um, literary agency were starting a new mentorship scheme for um writers and at that time they said they'd have two or three places or maybe even one place for an underrepresented writer and uh, um, by some miracle they did not require a completed manuscript and I had like 15,000 words and and that's they wanted that much and I thought okay this is brilliant so I put together I went onto the website and I thought who is the best agent for me and I saw what Hayley liked. I was like, I like that too. And yes, I've written something like that too. And I thought, this is the agent I want. I really, but don't, don't get fixated, Ronaldi. Just write the letter and don't get fixated because you won't get up, you're upset if you don't get Hayley. And just sent it off. I didn't think anything more of it. And the deadline came and went. And I thought, well, 
But again, see, you're not good enough. You're not going to get anywhere. Um, but the, they extended the deadline because they'd had so many applicants. And um, a couple of weeks later, I got an email saying, Hayley Steve, really liked your, um, your chapters and she wants to represent you. And I was like, no way. <laughs> so that was amazing because it was really unusual as well. Not because um, we all got contracts. We were all offered representation even before that we'd written anything else. Um, and so Hayley was fully invested from the beginning in getting me to the stage of having a final novel that she could then sell. Mm. And um, so then Haley and I worked together on the novel and my first draft, if anyone out there was writing one, it was appalling. <laughs> it was so bad. It was so bad. It was so, it was so bad that when I fixed it in two to three months, it took me two or three months to fix it and sent it back to Haley. She started reading it. She's like, Renali, this is fantastic. <laughs> and I knew then I was like, yeah, it was bad. <laughs> she wasn't expecting that change around. It was really bad. But it taught me so much actually, because when I learned how to write I'm in my masters, you're not taught about plotting or anything like that. You're not taught, taught about character arts. It's about the writing. So for me, I had to learn all of that um, and read a lot more and analyze the things that I was reading a lot more in order to get there. Um, and then before I knew it, it, uh, it was on submission. And um, I, I was lucky enough to get two offers and I picked Jane from Embler because she just really seemed to completely grasp my characters and what I was doing. And I thought I could work really well with her and I did work very well with she's dream and editor. And somehow it's, it's now been published, but and now I've said all of that, it seems really bizarre that all of that happened. You know, it happened in the lockdown period as well. Mm. You know, it's it's crazy to think that I had completely given up until 2019. Um, I finished my master's in 2015, and I think I withdrew from my um, PhD mid-2017. And, yeah, I didn't. If you asked me about that, if you said back then you're going to have a book published in 2022, I'd have just laughed my head off. <laughs> so I'd be like, no, you know, chances of me even finishing something were like minimal. Mm. <laughs> so that wasn't ever going to happen. So it's, it's, one those, really- it's one of those things where when, when you discuss it in a kind of condensed way like that, it almost feels like an overnight thing. It but does, yeah. You, you've put years of work into it and also lots of setbacks sort of knockbacks lots of moments like you said you still have that imposter syndrome where you don't even feel like a writer and that I don't really think that ever goes away I mean some of us may feel more confident than others in saying oh yes hello nice to meet you I'm a writer or an author or what have you but in yourself I think there's still doubt there's still is this a one-off can I write another book you know this is these are constant thoughts in our head I, I certainly feel like that anyway I, I I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think the thing about imposter syndrome is that when you're going through it, you think you are the only one mm. and you really think everybody else is so confident. And I, I very much buy the story, you know, that you see often on um, social media of other people's confidence. And I was like, oh, it's just me that feels like this. And for me, my little group of uh, six of us, in our mentorship has been a real godsend because you know everyone is like oh no I feel like that oh I feel like that and then I I think to myself thank god I'm not a complete freak I am 
very normal here. I think we all feel like that. And there is a part of me that feels that I think if you start losing some of that, I think for me, I would certainly lose some of my um, ability to write honestly, I think, because then I think I might be too attached to the kind of character that I've created of myself, the persona I've created of myself, rather than just being honest in my writing. And I think having the imposter syndrome is a good thing, because when I write, it is about what I want to write, not what I, what, what I think people might want to read from me. Mm. That makes any sense. I'd love to hear if there's one thing that you feel that you know now that you're published that you wished you'd known five years ago. I know you said if you'd gone back in time and told yourself you wouldn't have believed it five years ago, but is there anything you know now that you think, oh, I wish I'd known that when I first started out? I had a good think about this. I, I I think probably the thing that I was most surprised about with the whole process of getting published is how collaborative it is. And I think if I had known that I didn't have to do it on my own from the beginning, um, I might have given myself more freedom to write because what you see in a published book is not what that person started writing. And it's had a lot of influence on it you, with, with an agent, an editor, a copy editor, even the proofreader will have something to say about it. And, you know, and then you might have beta readers and so on. And I just think that if I had realised, it seems very naive of me to say that now because it's so obvious at this stage. But when I was writing alone, I think it did affect my confidence thinking that, you know, that finished product, I thought, you know, everyone was Muriel Spark and they just kind of <laughs> dashed off the lines and it was perfect. I didn't, and how ridiculous is that? You know, I sit here thinking I'm 51 years old. I should have known better really that it is, it, it's not the finished product. And I, you know, in your head you can rationalize and you know that, that people will have been through several drafts, but you don't really take into account how mm. much help you get in, and how much the feedback really helps you to shape and hone and improve what you've written so yeah I think that's the one thing I would go back and say to myself just relax yeah you will get help I think what you've said before about first drafts you know they are terrible and you're comparing it to a polished final yeah. book and it's so true because people out there listening to this who are working on their first draft second draft third whatever you will go into a shop and you'll pick up the book and you'll think wow this book is incredible like whether it's whether you're someone who you know looks at plot and goes this is amazing this is twisty this is brilliant or you're someone that looks at character or language oh. you're comparing yourself to something that has been worked on for years that has gone through five people maybe more but you don't always see that you don't always realize that and I think it's hard people are hard on themselves and thinking you know why isn't my work like that good because you haven't got that to that point yet and you will get to that point but it, it takes a while it takes like you say it takes a lot of effort from a lot of people and you should never compare your your first draft second draft third to a finished book because it's completely different it's, it's absolutely true, but as I'm listening to you saying that, I'm applying that to book two. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, as, as we're on the topic, <laughs> uh, my final question, really, 
can you give us a little tease about what you're writing and try not to panic and tell yourself that it's terrible because I know you're in the kind of messy stages so yeah. so tell me give us a little <laughs> tease about what it's about so I have just sent my chapter outline to my agent and editor so it's possible I come back and go no don't do that <laughs> <It's really> <laughs> stop now um but it is um it's it's another second chance romance um but it is just one couple this time and at this time I have a man and a woman and it is a very loose retelling of persuasion Ooh. Um, so it is a second chance romance but I because I write about mixed race couples I wanted to have a look at how that unsuitability is reflected in race mm. um and just our differences but it is probably at the moment it's more romantic than it, than even than the previous one interesting well I really look forward to hearing more about it when you've got further down the line and we're looking at a more polished version but really excited. <laughs> one day, one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm sure it won't be too far away but Renali thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today thank you so much Chloe it's been an absolute pleasure thank you that was Renali Collings talking about her commercial novel, Love and Other Dramas, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.